I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. Welcome to the Big Biology Podcast. Apologies for the silence of the last month. I moved to Australia short term for a research trip, and our producer Matt moved to Nashville to start a new job, but no worries, he'll remain part of the team. We're actively producing the next few episodes, and the next one is with Barbara Hahn, who's a disease ecologist at the Cary Institute. Expect that out in the next week or two. Soon after, we'll have episodes with Massimo Piliucci on plasticity and niche construction and Fred Tauber on individuality and the immune system. Today, though, we're going to air a special episode with science journalist Carl Zimmer. In early January, we sat down with Carl in San Francisco after he gave the plenary talk at the annual meeting of the Society for Integrative and Comparative Biology. Carl writes the Matter column for the New York Times and has frequently contributed to magazines such as The Atlantic, National Geographic, Wired, and Scientific American. He's also the author of numerous books about science, including Microcosm and Parasite Rex, and he has a new one coming out in May that we'll talk about during the, uh, during the chat with Carl. He's won numerous awards for his writing, including from the National Academy of Sciences and the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And now, Carl Zimmer. Uh, we're here, Marty Martin and I are here at uh, the Society for Integrative and Comparative Biology uh, annual meeting in San Francisco, which is one we come to every year. Uh, it's a great set of organismal biologists. And uh, today we're sitting down to talk live to Carl Zimmer, a science journalist who gave the plenary talk last night. And um, he uh, is going to chat with us for 30 or 45 minutes about the future of biology. So thanks for uh, sitting down with us, Carl. My pleasure. What you talked about last night was... Um... I, I, I heard it as advice for scientists about uh, being being aware of, of what's going on uh, in the government and such. If you, do you want to speak to that a little bit and, and sort of, uh, you know, given that our a lot of our audience is, is scientists, maybe have the chance for a, a larger platform for what we what we as organismal biologists need to do? Well, I think that um, organismal biologists um, don't think of themselves as doing uh, things that are prolific particularly political or controversial they just they have a notion of themselves as very quietly pursuing their curiosity about frogs or fish or what have you uh and uh, while that certainly may be what motivates them the fact is that what they're doing uh can be very controversial um and actually a lot of the the kind of work that gets done by biologists uh who go to this meeting um are that's attacked by politicians as a way of um going after what they see as government waste it's a waste of money to study these things cuz these this is what you know senators uh, have called silly science uh and so, you know, like it or not, this is political. And and I think that scientists need to um, acknowledge that. And, uh, you know, if they want their science to keep going forward, they're going to have to reckon with um, how they're being treated uh, and then also how they're being viewed by the public at large. I think it's naive to think that if you just don't pay attention to it, it all goes away. So do you think um, are, are politicians attacking organismal biology more than other sciences? Is it, is it somehow easier to attack this kind of science? Yes. I think organismal biology is, is, is easy for people to make fun of because uh, it, the, the questions that organismal biologists are addressing may not uh, 
be uh, as clear cut as other scientists and their and their research. You know, so like if a scientist is studying how cells divide, I mean, that's a basic question about biology. You can pretty quickly say like, well, look, you know, cancer is a disease of cells dividing. So therefore, what we're doing is important. Right. Sort of clear medical relevance. Uh... Right. I mean, even if if somebody publishes like 50 papers about cell division and never talks about cancer once, you know, if somebody asks, well, why are you doing this? You can say, well, hey, cancer maybe, you know. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, whereas with, you know, if you, let the, there's one one of these uh, 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 experiments with the organismal biologists have been doing that's become almost iconic for uh, a bunch of politicians is the research that's been done actually putting shrimp on treadmills and having them run. And uh, this is just the subject of, for years of, of relentless mockery from a lot of politicians, and it, it's continuing right now. And and because they just look at a picture and say, well, that's silly. Why would you do that? It seems like it's become a political meme almost. It has become a political meme. And like many memes, it becomes completely divorced from context. So people just look at an image and say like, oh, that's that looks silly, therefore it must be silly. And so, you know, they, they, so, you know, and it takes time to explain like, well, actually, if you put shrimp on a treadmill, you can actually learn a lot of things about how shrimp work and actually shrimp are, are like really important, ecologically speaking, and so on and so forth. I mean, like, if you have a little time to explain things to people, um, you can get that across, what why it matters. But I do think that Organismal biology can be uh, particularly uh, prone to this, and if you, you can look uh, for evidence of this in these reports that senators like Jeff Flake come out with, they call you know call them their waste book. So it's sort of a compendium of wasteful government spending, and a lot of it is organismal biology. You know, there's just his most recent one. He he doesn't go after shrimps on a treadmill. He does does go after fish on a treadmill. There's, the treadmills really drive these politicians crazy for some reason. Is there anything about organismal biology that lends itself to that? I know that almost sounds like the the thing that we've just been talking about. But you know, this comes back to basic versus applied science in some sense. And and in my mind, there are two kinds of versions of basic. One is understanding the organism in and of itself, and then maybe using that insight to do something with. And the other basic is something that's not obviously, you know, fixing an immediate problem, but it's basic with a mindset of using that critter to to do something, a particular task. And in that vein, I'm thinking about studying, say, bats for their penchant to, you know, maybe spread more zoonotic disease than other things. And is there is there something that biologists might do to get maybe not the, the government, but, but the public more aligned with this type of organismal biology. And I ask that because, you know, if you, if you turn on any nature show, mostly what you see is the David Attenboroughs traveling around the world doing cool natural history types of things. But the more sometimes complicated side of study, doing organismal biology in the interest of basic yet something with more obvious value, is that, do you think that maybe that's a channel to get the public more interested or, or backing of basic biology or organismal biology? Um, I'm not sure because, 
I think actually that in terms of, of the public's interest in organismal biology, it's already there. People really are incredibly fascinated with animals and how they work. And and actually, there's a lot of really good TV along those lines. And, you know, David Anborough, he does do the sort of natural history thing. But there, there are, you know, other shows that are just focused on biomechanics or like, you know, anatomists cutting animals apart or whatever. And they're successful shows. They do well. Uh, and, you know, certainly in my experience as a journalist, um, I've written lots of stories about organismal biology and like really getting into those scientific questions that are driving scientists and i've written books about them and um i you know keep getting more assignments like my editors say like this this is good and this our readers like this so i i don't think there's a problem there um i think i think that um or the the problem is more complicated in the sense that um Yes, I think it's a great thing to to ha- share more with the public about the science of organismal biology. That's good in and of itself. But uh, to think that that somehow solves all these other problems, like politicians um, attacking uh, this research, I don't. I, I I just don't see that as being sufficient. I'd like to ask a, a broader question about just the, the climate for science research in the U.S. So, you know, you've been you've been following science pretty intensively for the last few decades. And, and what's your perception of the climate now versus how it has been in the past? Um, I think that uh, right now there uh, are a lot of, of uh, impacts on scientific research that are really uh, concerning. Um, especially any science that is getting in the way of the oil industry. So if you study how releasing fossil fuels is uh, affecting the climate, especially if you are a government scientist, you're really concerned. In fact, you know some climate scientists have actually left the United States to go get funding and do research in other countries like France. So we, we we are in the middle of an exodus. So that's how bad things have gotten. Um, if you study uh, species to try to uh, ensure that they avoid extinction, um, so let's say the sage-grouse, and then that sage-grouse happens to be in the way of some sort of you know natural gas exploration, well, guess what? Um, years of scientific research are now being pushed aside so that the Department of Interior can, quote-unquote, review the sage-grouse situation. So um, so it's a very serious uh, situation for certain types of science. Um, there was a concern that the sort of general cost-cutting measures of the National Inst- were going to affect places like the National Institutes of Health, um, but a lot of people in Congress um, decided, you know, in terms of their own constituencies, that that wasn't going to happen. So actually, the National Institute of Health Health got a, a small increase in its funding. So it's a very complicated situation that's going on right now in science. But to me, all of that sort of sits atop of kind of broader trends. Um, you know, we we 
you know, scientists in the United States are are in a in a sort of a model where you know a professor brings in a bunch of grad students and the grad students do all the work and uh, the professor gets all the funding to 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 fund their work. And the idea is that all those grad students are training to become, say, organismal biologists like their professor. Uh, and, and just from first principles, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, exponential increase in supply, right? And the, the demand is not keeping up. Yeah, I mean, if we were opening up um, universities with organismal biology positions at some exponential rate, you could keep that going. But um, that's not how it's happening. And, and uh, you know, especially with funding being pretty flat, especially for, you know, National Science Foundation uh, work, um, you know, I just, it's, it, honestly, it, it seems very bleak to me. And I mean, I, you know, I, there are people, there are people who I have reported on, you know, people who've done really exciting work in organismal biology. Um, you know, they got these, you know, pub papers published in very prominent journals, and then journalists like myself have brought a lot of attention to their work. And then, you know, in the next round of grants, they get no money at all. And so basically, you know, their research kind of goes into hibernation. Like, I, I just, I'm not sure how, I mean, it's, with such low uh, success rates for scientists, I'm not sure how science is supposed to keep working in this country. Do you have any advice for for this glut of grad students that's you know coming through the system? I, actually, I don't think it's fair to put the onus on those grad students. You know, why is it that it's up to the grad students to understand that they're in a kind of a pyramid scheme? I think the professors need to be more honest with their grad students. I mean. I, 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 otherwise, it seems very deceptive. So what about pushing it up a notch then? Is, do you have any advice for the those of us that recruit the graduate students? I mean, is, well, there, is there a way that we could reorient the, the training regimes that, that folks go through to, to help? Well, I guess you'd have to ask yourself, well, what is it that you are training these students for? I mean, if, if you are... Uh, if you're saying like, you know, every year I want to uh, put out, you know, five people who are really well trained to do what I do, uh, but really couldn't do anything else. Why are you doing that? You know, it just, it doesn't make sense. So I, I would, I would think that it would require some th fundamental thinking about the scientific enterprise. Um, you know, and it's part, you know, this is partly a problem, I think, with basic science, um, especially, you know, organismal science. I mean, there are lots of other people uh, who, you know, lots of other ways of getting graduate education in the sciences where there are lots of, lots and lots of alternatives. Um, so, you know, people um, may, people who study, you know, biophysics. Maybe they want to become a professor or maybe they want to work at a pharmaceutical company or somewhere else. Um, there are lots of options that they have, um, a, a, a comparatively more options. Um, and so, um, 
Yeah, and so like you know, I, I and I know that you know, by bi, you know, biology grad students are thinking about you know what other options there are, and sometimes they'll say to me like, "Oh, well, science writing looks like a lot of fun. I think I want to do that." And I'll say, "Oh, yeah, it is a lot of fun, but it's really hard, and uh, it takes a, a while to like really put down your roots." Uh, and the industry itself is in a lot of turmoil, a different kind of turmoil than what science is going through. But, um, you know, don't think that you're just, you're, you're going to be just jump out and be, you know, land on a nice soft net of science journalism. Um, so, I mean, I think it's a serious issue and it requires a lot of discussion and, and rethinking. So what about your, what are your feelings on evolutionary medicine? I, mean, I, I teach that as a class, and I'm you know, to complete indoctrinate, and it's probably a lot of our listeners are too. But with the NIH budget increasing a little bit, and a lot of organismal biology lending itself to that type of work, I mean, is that a potential outlet? And I, I mean, I guess I'm generally interested in, in you know what your your feelings are on evolutionary medicine. Oh well, I'm fascinated with evolutionary medicine, and I. I try to report on it kind of on a regular basis when there's interesting new findings. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, there are opportunities where organismal biologists can t- tap into um, other areas of science where things might be, um, you know, things might be going perhaps better. Uh, <laughs> so, um you know, like it, it, for for people who study cancer, for example, um, you know, there's just a huge amount of research that goes on in cancer, huge amount of funding for research on cancer, both government funding and foundation funding. Um, but a lot of cancer research is really kind of, uh, I guess you could say, evolutionarily naive. So they might say like, oh, we'll just study some mice and we'll just see what happens. And, you know, like we're not mice and, and you know, <laughs> We're separated by not just a lot of evolutionary time, but a lot of evolutionary pressures so that, you know, mouse biology is, is really different than us. Um, actually, at this, at, uh, at this very meeting uh, yesterday, I, w- I got into a conversation with somebody who studies lungs. And he was saying, you know, you can't study cystic fibrosis in mice. You just can't. And I was like, what do you mean you can't? He's like, well, if you, you can knock out the cystic fibrosis gene in mice, and they do just fine. And I'm like, what? You mean their lungs don't fill up with fluid and they don't get all these infections? Like, nah, they don't care. I'm like, how could that be? And he's like, well, think about it. They're, they're small and they live a lot of their life underground, breathing a lot of dust and stuff. So they probably have, they, they, there's probably, a, partly it's a scaling issue and partly it's, it's an adaptation to dealing with a lot of garbage that you're breathing in and so they're not getting cystic fibrosis and and so you know you know for evolutionary biologists and people who study animals like they'd be like oh well yeah well like you know hello welcome to organismal biology (laughs) you know and so you know so there's there is a kind of a real there there is a small but growing area of research, which I'm really fascinated by, of, of really looking seriously at animals for deeper insights about evolution. So, you know, really looking at mice and saying like, okay, they get a lot of cancer, you know, but why do they get a lot of cancer? You know, what is it about them? 
and naked mole rats, which are, you know, uh, they're, they're fairly like mice, um, you know, roughly mouse size, but big, big, bigger. They don't seem to get cancer at all. Why not? Um, and, and, uh, you know, elephants are huge and you know, the bigger you are, the more likely you should be to get cancer. Actually, elephants don't seem to get a lot of cancer. And just recently people have actually started to look at the genetics of elephants and lo and behold, they have a bunch of extra copies of these anti-cancer genes that no one had seen before. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I would hope there'd be a lot more research along those lines. And that's a place where organismal biologists have a whole lot to bring to the table because, you know, cancer biologists, honestly, you know, frankly, like they just don't know about this stuff at all. They're lucky if they know about mice. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing that I've often heard about evolutionary medicine, the resistance is not so much a sort of resistance that comes from other other parts of the public in terms of having different ideas about how things work is that they're just plain not enough hours in the day to include classes in evolutionary biology in the medical curricula. So I don't know if you've heard that before, but it, I mean, if that's true, I mean, how really are we going to break into that cycle? I mean, the, the value of these things like extra copies of tumor suppressor genes in elephants the organismal biologists, how do we make the pipeline to have that happen? Or the, the med students that didn't know they would like evolution, we'll get them excited once they get into med school. Well, um, I think that might change um, if the, um, uh, the, the tests for getting into medical school start to require a better understanding of evolution. So um, if you just say like, okay, hey, like understanding evolution is part of what you need in your preparation to be even to go into medical school, then you're going to have more people with a better understanding of, uh, of evolutionary principles. And, you know, and that's important, you know, that could be important for more organismal biology in medical research. But I mean, it's just important across the board. I mean, like... Um, you know, antibiotic resistance is just one big old evolutionary experiment. And, um, you know, evolutionary biologists right now are the ones who are actually have all the good ideas about how to deal with it um, in terms of, of changing the game uh, by which these bacteria are evolving. You know, so one really innovative idea that just presented recently is... Um, create a, a change the, the the competition between the resistant bacteria in people and the susceptible ones so that actually if you you make it harder to be a resistant bacterium compared to a, a susceptible one then you favor the susceptible ones and then you can knock them out with antibiotics um, that would not occur to a medical doctor <laughs> Um, so, uh, I just wanted to ask about your column matter that you write for New York times. So, uh, weekly column, you cover a really broad range of topics. What are the, some, some of the coolest things that you've written about in the last year? If you had to pick one or two, your, your favorite topics. Uh, the great thing about, uh, the column is that, um, you know, I, I had been writing features on a regular basis for the New York times and then they just decided, you know, we just want to kind of formalize this and just have you write something every week in a column. I'm like, okay, about what? And we sort of batted around some particular approaches that maybe I would take. And then they just said, ah, whatever, just 
whatever you want. Write about whatever you want. Huh? Yeah, literally. That that was that was their. Those are my orders, and I was like, okay. And so, um, and so that has. I don't even imagine that I could like write about like everything or even like survey everything. It's just too broad. So I've been trying to just pursue the things that I am just particularly fascinated by, and and also the, the things where the science is really um, hitting pay dirt. And I think one of the areas is you know maybe it's a little anthropocentric but um i you know human origins is just um it's just really exciting right now um whether it's fossils or ancient dna so with fossils um you know uh, i just wrote a few months ago about the new there were new fossils of our species homo sapiens found in morocco Previously, the oldest fossils known of our species were about 200,000 years old. These are 300,000 years old. And people pretty much agree these are Homo sapiens. And so that that really changes the ball game. Yeah, and it's, 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 it's old. It's older than people had expected. And they're in Morocco. Like, they're not in the sort of classic Ethiopia, Kenya kind of area that people focused on for human origins. So, wow. I mean, that's, it's really exciting. And then um, ancient DNA is now coming out of fossils, um, thousands or tens of thousands of years old. And that is basically, you know, just filling in big gaps that seemed unfillable before, you know? So I, I just wrote um, this week about, uh, how people came to the Americas. And there are like there've been a lot of ideas like, well, they must have come across the Bering Land Bridge, but the problem is like, you know, the archaeologists couldn't find any remains from that particular period on the Bering Land Bridge, partly because a lot of it's underwater. Um so now it turns out that there's a fossil of um a, an infant uh, who died a, over 11,000 years ago in central Alaska. And scientists have pulled out her whole genome, which is unbelievable. And she belongs to this ancient population that split off from the ancestors of other Native Americans about 20,000 years ago. Um, we just didn't know these people existed. And um, if you look at her genome and compare it to Native Americans and people in Asia, all of a sudden a lot of things fall into place about how Siberians you know, you know, produced a population that became the Native Americans. It's unbelievable. Yeah, really amazing. Yeah. So, um, if I could ask you to look sort of forward from there, what what do you see happening in in terms of human origins and human evolutionary biology in the next five or ten years? So, one of the most exciting uh, uh, developments in the past few years in human origins was that there were scientists. Uh, didn't weren't just discovering ancient DNA belonging to humans or to Neanderthals. In other words, things that we already knew about from bones, things we already had names for. They started to find genomes from little scraps of bone, and they just realized these these were entirely separate populations of human-like things. So there's one uh, group called the Denisovans, and they split off from Neanderthals maybe about 400,000 years ago. 
and probably lived in East Asia. And they're just known from four teeth and finger bones, each of which has a lot of DNA in it. Um, and uh, so I expect that we are going to discover a lot of other what are called archaic humans from from DNA. Um, that you know, well, there'll be these fossils that people find and be like, well, I think it's human or maybe Neanderthal. I don't really know what. I think we'll realize that even you know, fifty thousand years ago or twenty thousand years ago, there were different kinds of humans we shared the planet with, um, and, and that there are intimations of that already. And I think that's just going to really, um, really become much stronger in the next ten years. So uh, let's sort of stay on this thread, but maybe broaden a little bit. As a journalist, um, this is an uncomfortable question to ask to an extent. But what do you see as the future? Of biology broadly, I mean. So we we invited you to do this really to to talk about uh, I guess where we're going, and I don't remember if we used the words about golden age, but I mean, do you, do you feel that we are in or entering a golden age, and despite why and what's planet. coming? <laughs> yeah. Well, in spite of that, and you know, maybe our inability to do much research because of the money we don't have, but you know, what's your feeling there? Well, you know, it is a sort of best of times, worst of times situation. Um, you know, I, I, the, you know, the tools that scientists can use are really uh, stunning. You know, the you you know whether it is, you know, high speed video cameras for studying animal flight, um, or uh, whether it's you know uh, cloud computing to solve problems having to do with massive evolutionary trees that once seemed unsolvable um you know sequencing genomes out of individual cells i mean it's it's just um stunning uh you know uh, microscopy like down to the level of molecules with cryo em it's so exciting um and uh so uh, I, I do actually think that, you know, for me as a, as a journalist, I am going to be like scrambling to keep up with exciting new science that is coming out for, you know, the rest of my career. I, I am confident about that. Um, you know, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the well-being of the scientists themselves, I can't, <laughs> I can't vouch for how that's going to go. You know, I, I mean, there are, there are going to be these issues these struggles, these uh, political conflicts, I mean, those are going to just get stronger, I, I, I fear. Yeah. How about the conceptual side? So, you know, you've written a book on evolution, and that's definitely something that, that resonates with you. What are your feelings about where evolutionary theory is going? And, and maybe more for the biologist than how we're going to interface and, and you know, talk to the public about it. There's been calls, just a little bit farther, there have been calls for an extended synthesis in evolutionary biology and the sort of modern synthesis where we started to apply, you know, Mendelian ideas to the way that evolution works. Now there have been calls for an update. Yeah, I, I've done some reporting on this uh, for magazine articles, and um, I'm writing, a, I've written a book about heredity, and I and I touch on some of these issues there as well. Um I, I, my feeling from talking to scientists involved in these debates is that um, th a lot of things get sort of tangled up in um, 
definitions like and and how the what people mean by the words they use so when people say we we have to have an extended evolutionary synthesis because the current synthesis is just is insufficient and then other people say well what's the big deal like sure like okay i'm not disagreeing with you that you know that development is complicated and and that you know, there's a simple map between the genotype and the phenotype. Phenotype. No one ever said that. So why are you creating a straw man? What, what's the big deal? Um, so, um, so I don't think that there's going to be any great big grand leap in sort of evolutionary theory until people settle those sort of more basic definitional disputes or even un- recognize that they're sort of talking past each other. Um, I, you know, I think that, um, you know, and it's too bad in a sense, because I mean, there's so much, there's so much data that's just gushing out now. And it would be nice to have really powerful theories that organize them well, but you know, it's not really, it's not really happening. And I mean, I see this, um, I see this happening a lot um, in genomics where uh, you you have these scientists who say like, okay, great. I, I'm going to, I'm going to look for, um, I'm going to look for, for, for genes or, or, or loci that uh, are associated with diabetes or height or this or that. And I'm just going to go through this process and, Boom! They they get you know the, the bigger the sample size they get, the more genes that they turn up, um, you know. So they have this catalog, and it just gets longer and longer and longer. So just height, you know, for example, like they're up now to like eight hundred genes now, which account for I, th- I think it's about a quarter or a third of the variation in height. So, you know, like the, so, so, and, and, you know, there've been these scientists who said like, well, actually, like if we really drill down into the, the fine details of those studies, like it's likely that there are probably several, a couple million sites in the genome that are associated with height. So like at that point, you gotta be like, okay, we need something more than just (laughs) another catalog. We need another concept for explaining how a trait like height is related to what's going on in the genome. Um, and and um, that's going to be, th- that's going to take like network scientists and a bunch of other people to get in and really kind of hash things out. Um, so yeah, we, new th- more theory would be great, but I, I'm not, it's hard to predict when that's going to finally show up. Right, right. Has, has that that sort of mindset influenced your your emphasis on things like the microbiome and you know, these other really difficult to quantify gigantic data set types of things. And, you know, the, the relatively recent, they haven't been on the radar of a lot of biologists until the last few, well, not few years, but 10, 15 years or so. Well, the microbiome is a really interesting example of, of what happens in science these days. So because, um, you know, we've known since the days of Leonuk that like we've got bacteria in us or, or little things living inside us, we animalcules, as they called them. But just recently, in the scheme of things, past 10 or 20 years, it became possible to 
survey those microbes without having to actually grow them on a plate. And so you just fish out DNA and you catalog them and, and you try to figure out where they fit on the tree of life. Um, and, uh, you know, that is the result of, you know, new software being written, new kinds of technology for get, grabbing pieces of DNA, you know, sequencing DNA, all that. Um, all very, you know, sort of applied stuff, not like big theory. Anyway, uh, as soon as those results start coming out, uh, I and other reporters jumped on these these results because it was just fascinating. Like saying, like, "Oh my gosh! Like here are all these things that are that are living in your gut, and here are the patterns that you see when you compare one person to the next." You know, like that. You know, the composition of species that live on the front of your teeth are different than the ones that live on the back of your teeth, and it just just that stuff that's just so much fun to write about. Um, but then you start hoping that like the, all of this data will like lead you somewhere. Uh, and it, it hasn't really yet. I mean, in the sense that like, it's just, or, or, or it's, it's hard, it's hard to pull things out that you can report on um, as being some grand unified theory of the microbiome or something. Cause you just like, it just like keep finding like more and more stuff and saying like, well, actually there are all these rare species and they might matter a lot. And, and then like, well, actually we've been looking at these Europeans and maybe we shouldn't have been doing that. We got to go check out the hunter gatherers in Africa. And, and it might be a bad thing to try to grab for, um, a big picture explanation too soon. And I mean, I actually feel uh, reporters need to resist that urge. And I've made that mistake myself. So there was a paper in Nature uh, that came out a few years ago where scientists, really leading scientists studying the microbiome, said, okay, we looked at these different people and we cataloged their, their bacteria. And they seem to sort of form three clusters of combination of species it's and they said they said we're gonna these are almost like blood types we're gonna call them enterotypes entero meaning you know your gut so you have these three types of compositions in your gut some people have you know like a species called prevotella they have a lot of that and other people don't and so on so, so the scientists say we found these three enterotypes these, these three microbiome types and and you know this could be really important uh, for medicine and and so on and so you know I wrote about it uh, published in the New York Times. Um, well, you know it turned out that when you look at larger groups of people, those supposedly distinct enterotypes start to fade or blur into each other until you get to the point where you can't see any real distinct types at all. Um, and so this was an example of taking, you know, small samples and immediately trying to jump to big lessons. And uh, that was, that was, in hindsight, that was wrong. Um, and, uh, you know, so, you know, I, I, so I'm still reporting on the microbiome these days, but I'm very, um, uh, careful about not letting myself get too carried away with all of it and like what it means and what the latest study portends and so on. 
you know, so if my editor says like, oh, so are you saying that this changes everything? I'm like, mm, no. Changes no. something. Maybe. So, <laughs> we'll see. It's cool. It's interesting. It's thought provoking. What exactly it means, I don't think we know and we may not know in terms of the microbiome for 20 years. But that's okay. Yeah. Well, it's hard not to get excited about that, too. I mean, I don't know a biologist that just gets super excited about every day. Carl, a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned your book, and I just wanted to ask you in a little more detail about it. Um, it's called, for those of you who don't know, She Has Her Mother's Laugh, uh, published by Dutton, and it's going to come out in May 2018. Um, the subtitle is The Powers, Perversions, and Potential of Heredity. So what's the book about? The book is about heredity uh, and uh, and and what that concept has meant to us for thousands of years and what it's going to mean to us in the future. Um, you know, heredity heredity is one of those words that um, you don't actually need to explain to anybody. Like, you don't need if, if you start talking about heredity, people don't say, "Oh, what's that?" You know, like meiosis. <laughs> So everybody knows what heredity is or thinks they know what it is. Um, but I think we have a lot of, uh, we have a list, lot of misunderstandings about it, you know, so that we look to, you know, uh, a 23andMe test to, to connect ourselves with our ancestors and to somehow sort of discover some sort of genetic essence that they passed down to us. And that's just not how heredity works. Uh, heredity is, doesn't, uh, live up to these uh, myths that we have about it. Um, the flip side of it is that actually heredity is much more interesting than than uh, a lot of people realize. Um, you know, like there's there's really a, you know you could say there's a heredity inside of us as we develop from a fertilized egg. I mean, scientists will actually draw sort of genealogical trees of your cells. So how is it that you know one cell becomes you know, 30 trillion cells in your body of all, you know, hundreds and hundreds of different types. Um, you have to understand how cells inherit not just their genes, but the activity of those genes from their their mother cells. Um, and, you know, maybe uh, there are other kinds of heredity um, that exist beyond genes that we need to take more seriously. Um, and, you know, I talk about how controversial an idea this is and 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 you know there there are some things that have really kind of uh, really become very trendy and gone way ahead of the evidence so like epigenetics for example i mean there's definitely some epi evidence that epigenetics can be carried down from one generation to the next in plants in animals it, the evidence is much more uh much more contested uh, and but you know the microbiome we were just talking about. I mean, there are definitely some species where the microbiome is handed down as faithfully as an animal's own genes. Um, uh, you know, and in humans, it's like it's not quite that faithful. But on the other hand, like there is a correlation between parents and their children in terms of what's living inside them. And so scientists will talk about that as a as a form of heredity. Uh, and then culture itself is 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 another kind of heredity, and I, and I think what it's really important that we understand heredity in a sort of fuller, richer sense, because we are at this point where all of a sudden we we are getting hold of tools to 
to potentially change heredity, you know, to use CRISPR, for example, to, to you know, to retool the germline or to um, use what's called gene drive to introduce genes into wild populations and just let them spread and basically override Mendel's law. I mean, that these are things that we could start doing tomorrow if we wanted to. Uh, and I think that uh, it really demands that we we think about what heredity means to us, what we value about it, what we want to protect in it. Um, and, and, you know, maybe, you know, are we thinking about it in, in some ways in the wrong way? What's the right way to think about it? Mm -hmm. We talked with uh, Massimo Piliucci a little bit about ecological inheritance, um, you know, which is this idea that, that some sets of organisms build structures or modify their environments in ways that they bequeath to their offspring. So like, you know, beaver dams get handed down from parents to offspring or termite mounds get inhabited for multiple generations. How, how important do you think ecological inheritance is, I guess, generally? And is there something there about, you know, human ecological inheritance? Well, I, I don't think you can really understand human history without understanding human ecological inheritance. You know, I mean, uh, we started changing our environments, you know, tens of thousands of years ago with fire. Um, uh, you know, we used fire to, you know, to flush out game and to maybe for other purposes. Uh, and these were just large scale changes that we started making to the environment in the same way that, you know, elephants will, you know, knock over trees and so on and maintain savannas. Um, so we, we were becoming these sort of ecological engineers and then our offspring would be born into these environments that we were creating and then sustaining. Um, and then, you know, the agricultural revolution just um expanded that um and so that you know you you uh you know it's interesting because um you know the the word heredity itself you know comes from um the the, the legal term for for inheriting uh property uh and and uh you know, biologists in the in the uh, 1700s and 1800s um, kind of borrowed the word, or in the, they basically like claim like, okay, we're going to try to explain heredity. Um, you know, in the, the, in the biological sense, um, and the, and they sort of tried to narrow it down, and they ended up, you know, that ended up with the discovery of genes, which is obviously a big deal. <laughs> But there was a something kind of got lost along the way, you know. The, the the fact is that we do actually inherit other things than genes from our parents or from our forebears, and one of the things we inherit is this planet. That might be a nice place to stop. Well, I think so. Oh well, I mean, we've taken so much of your time. <laughs> well, it's fun, you know, once you get me going on this stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, we know, we definitely know how you feel. <laughs> well, Carl, thanks so much for talking to us. We really appreciate it, and uh, it's great to sit down and talk over these topics. Oh well, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks a lot. Good luck with the book. It sounds like it's uh, it's going to be really yeah. fun. I'll pre-order my copy. Awesome. <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks. All right. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks to behind the scenes help from Matt Blois, Steve Lane, Gerard Sapes, Roman Boisseau, and Haley Hansen. 